I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equas. As an exchange, Equas is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equas currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. And not once, not twice, but now a third time, I have the pleasure of having Sergey, the co-founder of Chainlink, with me today. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, David. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on again. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. It is always a pleasure to hear from you as one of the more integral projects and companies in this space. And it's always good to hear what's happening on your side and to hear about all the different projects out there that are using Chainlink for the various different reasons they are. We're going to jump right into it. For those that are not familiar with Chainlink that are new to the show that are listening, there are two other shows where we did a very full analysis of what Chainlink does and the different value propositions. We're going to talk about some things today about how smart contracts are so significant for society and about how smart contracts are evolving and the role that Chainlink is playing with a lot of the different subcomponents of the Ethereum ecosystem, whether it's DeFi, NFTs, all the other stuff that's happening. But, you know, I think the first question that I'd like for us to talk about, Sergey, and we'd love to hear your thoughts are why are smart contracts so significant for society today? I think the way to look at it is what underpins a lot of society's ability to function properly from the point of view of agreement. And societies that have an ability to form agreements uh, for people inside, in, inside of them around various economic activity, those societies tend to, to really accelerate in economic development and what they can kind of make and build. And throughout history, what you've seen is as various agreements or capacity to make agreements has expanded, you've seen um, a, correlate, a, very lo- a very strong correlation between that and the expansion of society and economic growth in general, right? So you have, as soon as you have s- contracts for ownership, people can invest money and join enterprises. As soon as you have contracts for employment, people can make commitments to each other. As soon as you have contracts for um, corporations, people can pool a lot of resources into a corporation, and that kicked off, you know, by many accounts, the Industrial Revolution is, is the fact that people could pool their resources into corporations that would do those things. And the, the most recent developments have really been around how do you make digital agreements, right? So a lot of the services we all rely on actually are based on digital agreements. Uber is a, digital, a set of digital agreements. E-commerce is a set of digital agreements. 
The content that you read online is supported by advertising, which is backed by digital agreements. Facebook is paid for through digital agreements, through advertising. And, and so the, the ability for people to agree and in the world of the internet have those agreements enforced in an automated way are really what underpin a lot of the things we consume both in a digital and physical sense. And what, what smart contracts do is they evolve agreements into something that is beyond, is beyond the control of any one centralized entity. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason that that's important is that you can now have impartial, technologically enforced agreements. One, one example that I, that I always like is insurance. So there are many parts of the world where you can't have something like crop insurance. And people that don't really think about that, they're like, okay, crop insurance, what is that? Who cares? But, but the reality is, is if you're a farmer and you don't have crop insurance, you could have two seasons of drought and you could end up in a situation where you have to stop being a farmer, you upend your life and become a, a migrant worker or something. But if you do have insurance, you can pay a small premium, you can go through the two seasons of drought, and you can come out on the other end still being a farmer and still contributing to society and still living a productive economic uh, kind of life. Right. And so the, the, the fascinating thing about smart contracts is that what they enable people to do or what they enable the world to have is a parallel technologically enforced system of contracts that people like farmers in emerging markets with no really good legal system can have access to. Mm-hmm. So this means that a company like, uh, like Arbol, which is an insurance company we work with, can make uh, crop insurance contracts. Regardless of the local legal system, they can provide those crop insurance contracts on a blockchain that's accessible to those people because they have access to the internet and blockchains are accessible through the internet. And then what, what our system does is it proves whether the rainfall or the drought occurred, mm-hmm. and that allows the triggering of that contract in this parallel technologically enforced legal system. Right. And the, the, the really powerful shift is, is actually twofold. One, one fold of it is that in the developed world, you have systems that can't be manipulated by more powerful actors which is what actually usually happens during most financial crises. You see a few people manipulating the financial system to their benefit Mm -hmm. because the financial system isn't transparent enough or tamper-proof enough. And those booms and busts from developed markets, because the system of contracts is so kind of weak, um, gets manipulated and eventually affects all of us through, through things like the 2008 crisis. And then in emerging markets, if you have a parallel system of technologically enforced system of contracts, you amazingly enough now have the ability from people for people to go from zero to one. So you you might not have had a savings account, but guess what? You can now have uh, access to stable coins just because you have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. You might not have had access to insurance, but guess what? You now have access to insurance because there's smart contract insurance that has nothing to do with your local legal system and everything to do with pr- the proof of reality that a smart contract can get and act on. Right. And so I, I think this shift is, 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 quite, is quite a monumental shift. You know, it's interesting you're bringing this up because a lot of people have, this has been under the radar that there is a social movement here in addition to obviously a financial movement. 
Um, but the social side is absolutely correct and that, you know, there is effectively a large paradigm shift that's happening right now where, as you mentioned before, people that were not in the system now can be participants in the system, if you will, uh, because of the technological advancements there. And then obviously with the advent of smart contracts, um, that has just obviously increased exponentially that footprint. And so I would love for you to opine a little bit about this. And for people that are learning about smart contracts and learning about obviously the role that Chainlink plays in that, you know, I talk about it quite often because a lot of people did not realize, and just to kind of frame it right now, you have more attention on digital assets and this world today than you ever have in the past. Unfortunately, it took a global pandemic for that to happen, and people saw how the proverbial sausage is made in terms of fiscal monetary policy and stimulus, and so they have really started to question things. But this has been a evolutionary process. This has happened very fast. You know, many of us thought that it would take years for people to really become awake to this. And during that awakening period, they have become very cognizant of the role Ethereum has, especially with smart contracts. And I always like to say, you know, for people that are not familiar with that, you effectively are saying A plus B equals C, but in a protocol, in a sense, not just humans interacting with that, but it is all code-based and protocol-based. And so you need to have, you know, validation of information that is coming into that smart contract to make sure that everything is harmonious and it works. And so how have those evolved? And again, how do those oracles fit into this evolution? I I think the way the way smart contracts have evolved have has been with with more and more functionality slowly coming about in a secure way. So what what the smart contract infrastructure has has really seen happen to it is that you initially had Bitcoin be the initial first usable form of security in the form of a smart contract or a blockchain. And that's because people build infrastructure where the users didn't have to build the security of the infrastructure. They could simply use the, that security, the security of a Bitcoin, through a private key. Then you had other people appear who said, I'm going to take the same model of generating security that Bitcoin had or has, and I'm going to expand it for new types of data. I'm going to essentially allow people to do transactions other than the movement of a Bitcoin. There are going to be transactions about for example, the creation of a new token that can represent a piece of art or a piece of equity or a piece of real estate or a piece of whatever. And that ability to script up a contract about another token other than Bitcoin is, I think, the large innovation that Ethereum really brought forward into our industry. And so the, the ability to, without generating security yourself, engage in the creation of a token that benefits from a system's security and everybody else knows that that system is secure and therefore that token is immutable in that if they were to get the token, it couldn't be taken away from them and therefore it's, it's different than the relationship they have with a bank or some other entity. That, in addition to voting and using private keys to vote, I think those were the, the two big evolutions that Ethereum kind of brought forward to us and they're basically called tokenization and DAOs. Now, I think, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing people taking those scriptable smart contract capabilities 
and expanding them into more and more categories of contracts, which is what I uh, got into the industry around to begin with about, you know, for seven years now, we've been building and and writing smart contracts in, in various formats. And the smart contracts I was always interested in were the ones that didn't necessarily generate a token. They might hold a token as collateral or they might do something with a token in an insurance policy, but they replicated the real world's relationship with contracts in this new tamper-proof, highly reliable format. And it turns out that, you know, if you work on smart contracts for seven years, in about year, you know, one or two, you realize that smart contracts, despite having the word smart at at the beginning, don't actually have connectivity to external systems. So smart contracts should really be called tamper-proof digital agreements or something like that. And what they can really do is they can house the logic of what would happen if a certain set of conditions obtained. But they cannot go and learn whether those conditions have obtained. So they cannot go and actually access external data for the simple reason that they need to stay secure. And the security that they get from being in a blockchain precludes them from accessing external data purposefully. This leads to something called the Oracle problem. And the Oracle problem is essentially the problem of how does a smart contract interface with the real world in a way that it receives proof about what happened in a way that allows it to to, to continue to, to function according to what happened in the real world. And this is essentially the problem that Oracle solve. Oracles solve the problem of generating definitive truth about the real world to the standard of smart contracts, right? Smart, smart contracts, just like Bitcoin, just like blockchains, are unique in that they're deterministic, in that they're guaranteed to function a certain way, separately from anybody's desires, whether that's a government's desires or a counterparty's desires or one of the participants' desires. You, you code up the contract, you, you sign off on it with a private key using you know, various cryptographic means, and that's it. That contract is underway, and it's beyond anybody's control, regardless of the power dynamics between, between the parties in the contract, which is truly a unique thing in the history of all contract uh, law, contract dynamics, game theory around contracts. And the expansion of those contracts beyond tokenization, beyond private key signing, which, is, which are important foundations, right? You do need tokenization, so a lot of value flows into the ecosystem around which you can then write more advanced contracts and things like DeFi. But what oracles fundamentally do is they enable those contracts to have proof about what's in the real world. And once you have proof about something, then you can write a contract around it. And, and this is the dynamic we're engaged in where as we put more and more data into a blockchain, we see that with market data, you have DeFi appear. Mm-hmm. With randomness in sports data, you have gaming applications appear and grow. Mm-hmm. With insurance-related data about weather and other things, you see insurance, smart contract insurance products like the mm-hmm. one I mentioned come into existence. With various other data, uh, you see various other use cases come into, into existence because the missing piece of the puzzle for them was knowing what was going to happen in the world and actually knowing when that happens. Right. And once they have that missing piece of the puzzle, the universe about which you can write a contract expands. And that's actually what DeFi is. DeFi is the expansion, the, the small, relatively small, but rapid expansion into a new category of contracts where the tokens that were generated can be placed in those contracts and the private key voting that exists can be used 
in the administration of those contracts, but those contracts are fundamentally about generating a contractual outcome. Um, and in, in the case of DeFi, they need market data. So they need prices to know how those contracts are valued, how they settle, you know, their different stages. And in our provision of that data to those contracts, it's helped accelerate and grow the DeFi ecosystem. It's, it's not a coincidence that around the time that high quality Oracle mechanisms like Chainlink have appeared, DeFi has also uh, appeared and started to grow, you know, two, three, four fold. And just as Sergey is alluding to, one of the things that I talk about a lot on this show is that the metric that we, one of the metrics that we use to evaluate the health and strength of decentralized finance is total value locked. Now that is a metric that is up for dispute amongst the community. Some people like it, some people don't. But the total value locked at the end of April of this year was about $830 million. And just by checking one of our sites, DeFi Pulse, you can see that it's almost $12.5 billion today. So over about a five to six month period, you have just seen massive growth. And as Sergey is alluding to, one of the reasons of that driver is because of the oracles and what Chainlink is doing there to ensure that those financial contracts uh, have the data that they need to have to validate uh, that purpose. So going beyond DeFi, you know, obviously everyone was talking about DeFi for the last six, seven months. You have projects like Uniswap that are now on Bloomberg, <laughs> which is, if you think about it, you know, a few years ago, that would probably have never happened. Um, so it's quite an amazing turn of events. And so going beyond DeFi, uh, because people are starting to look beyond just the financial aspect, the idea of smart contracts, the idea, obviously, of oracles, uh, in all of those com components have a larger total addressable market than just finance. You have, as you mentioned, gaming, you have art, you have real estate, you have insurance. There are very large pockets of total addressable market that that can handle. So what unique cases, specifically, if you can, you know, you mentioned insurance, but what specifically are you seeing today more of an emphasis on things like NFTs and art, as I mentioned? Are you seeing more on gaming? Are you seeing more on insurance as kind of a trend or as a kind of a heat map? Where are you seeing the ball going right now as it relates to the work that you do with Chainlink and everyone else in the in the ecosystem? Right. So in, in addition to market data driving the growth of DeFi and the appearance of more market data leading to more markets within DeFi being made possible, right? Because you can't make a market unless you have data around which to make that market, basically, in, 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 in the case of DeFi. Beyond, beyond that very simple and powerful dynamic, uh, which generates yield and all kinds of other positive things for the ecosystem, I think you're seeing basically two or three other categories and then, and then one other large dynamic around, around various data. So you're, you're seeing gaming generating NFTs. You're seeing gaming generate various broad proof blockchain games. And that is a higher volume of transactions, but usually a lower total value locked. But you are seeing a growth in that. And there are many categories of gaming that have all kinds of trust and fraud issues with their users that blockchains and decentralized computation uniquely solve. In, in, in the case of gaming, we provide things like sports data, 
and we provide things uh, like randomness. So randomness is extremely important for many gaming applications because the game is fundamentally driven by a certain aspect of randomness, a certain chance that the user will get a certain sword or that they'll get a certain NFT minted if they participate uh, in, in the NFT minting process through paying for it or, or any number of other factors related to gaming where randomness is very important. And recently, we launched, um, we, we finally launched on mainnet Chainlink VRF. So Chainlink VRF is a verifiable random function that we've been working on um, for a number of years now that we finally got audited and we're able to make go live on production to prove to people that the randomness was generated in an ungameable, verifiable way. And what that does is it extends the guarantees of the game to the randomness as well as to the place where the game operates, which is the uh, blockchain, right? So the blockchain gives you one set of guarantees about how the game operates, and now you have a source of randomness that gives a second very important set of guarantees. In in gaming, those, those are the really the two categories. It's kind of data about sports and, and randomness as an important category. Then you see uh, insurance as, as a very important category. That crop insurance example I mentioned at the start is actually live on production. So right now, live on production, you have smart contracts related to weather data that we provide through the Oracle network, validating that weather data, triggering real value for users um, you know, out there in the world. And at the end of the day, I think that's a, that's a monumental shift forward in what the insurance industry can do, which usually moves slower. But I'm actually seeing a very hopeful picture of a number of insure techs like Arbol moving forward relatively rapidly to make really innovative insurance products, many of which are baking blockchains directly into how they operate. And it's the baking of, the, of blockchains into how they operate and the promise that the insurance platform can give users because a smart contract is the method by which the contract is settled, the user can now be told, yeah, you don't really need to know the US legal system or any other legal system related to Arbol. You just need to have access to the internet and you need to understand that this is just like a Bitcoin, except it's not a Bitcoin, it's an insurance contract, but you get the same kind, kinds of guarantees around the, the control and the uh, outcome being assured. Mm. Beyond uh, gaming and insurance, we actually see a multitude of different data that we're putting on chain. Uh, we're seeing more and more data providers run their own chain link nodes mm. and run those nodes to provide things like um, election data and you know various crypto price data mm -hmm. certain 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 data that actually is is non obvious like election data is something that as we see it go on chain we start to get more inquiries about hey how do i use this can i use this for my prediction market can i use this for a different use case right and so what we consistently notice is is that there's a few verticals where we know that the depth and quality of data is very important like DeFi, gaming, and insurance. And we're, we're very focused on making sure that those, those verticals have the depth and quality of data they need to grow. And then there's a kind of breadth of data that is often generated by data providers running their own node, their own chain link, official chain link node, and sending things like election data into a blockchain, allowing people to then build smart contracts around that data, uh, which is quite interesting. I actually had one of our recent hackathons, we had somebody live on production build a smart contract that could rent a Tesla to somebody using the Tesla API hmm. and actually receive, and, and the owner of the Tesla would receive payment for that. 
Wow. And, and a smart contract could manage that entire rental and payment process because the Chainlink Oracle was able to allow an API-based interaction with the Tesla. And so it's just things like that that you can't really predict. But as you, as you put more and more data and more and more points of access into blockchains through, through a system like Chainlink, people begin to compose all those fascinating new uh, resources, new kind of data, data sources and access to various things like you know, the Tesla API into these really exciting smart contracts. And, and as the amount of data grows, so do, do, do the compositions of all that data and all those resources into more and more advanced and useful use cases. That is really interesting. I, uh, <laughs> that, that is, uh, fairly mind blowing. you know, we had, I remember conversations about this years ago, but you know, as you alluded to the ability to do that was really not there. Um, and, um, you know, it was kind of fanciful, if you will, it was kind of like, uh, you know, something that could have happened uh, and people were very excited about it, but when you actually tried to do it, it wasn't there. And so I think you're obviously alluding to the fact that, you know, we're coming leaps and bounds. The last question I would love for you to kind of opine about, Sergey, is, you know, the adage, the old adage of adoption. You know, when did these things become adopted? And I think, you know, full and fair disclosure, you know, you know, this adoption idea, you know, everyone who's listening to this, we're going to be airing this, you know, obviously early next week, PayPal, obviously coming into this world, you know, fast and furious, over 300 million, you know, daily active users. And you have, you know, you know, all millions of users on Venmo, and you have 26 million merchants, all of that activity, you know, is just, you know, kind of the the precipice, just the start of this. And so, you know, in terms of mainstream adoption, do you think it's really going to be driven by the legacy like that, you know, something like a PayPal, or do you think there's other methodologies to get more people kind of adopting these things? I, I think there's three important dynamics when it, when it comes to, to adopt, the adoption of DeFi and the adoption of smart contracts. I think the first dynamic is actually a backend dynamic where what you see is you see people building protocols that are made up of separate little pieces. And in our space, they're, they're lovingly called money Legos. In computer science, it's more called composability. And in the web world, it's called service-oriented architectures. But what it, what it all equates to is that you have these little individual building blocks that are their own separate pieces that can be composed by various developers. And this is actually how people build things in the web world. Like when you look at how something like Uber is built, the people who make Uber, they don't make the, the, the API that tells them the location of the user. That's the Google GPS API. They don't make the service that sends the SMS to the user. They use something like Twilio. And then they don't actually make a payment system. They use something like Stripe, right? So the, the web world has um, this microservices, service-oriented, highly composable um, architecture where developers are quickly able to compose various building blocks. And this is something that really hasn't existed in the way that people build smart contracts up until relatively recently. Because up until relatively recently, people build these monolithic singular kind of contracts like the DAO that wasn't super usable by many others. And it was really a lot of code in, 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 in one contract, right? But as you have these composable little pieces kind of services, you already see a number of protocols in DeFi using each other's services, just like people in the web world use each other's services. And this has massively accelerated the speed at which many teams are able to build. So 
that's a dynamic we participate in by actually providing a lot of those services on chain in the form of every chain link that provides data is like a service. Every chain link that provides something like randomness is its own service. Everything that provides proof about the real world is a service that other protocols then compose into their own services that then other protocols and other services use and build on top of, which is why people can build so many amazing things so quickly in the web world. So I think that dynamic is going to accelerate the rate at which iteration happens around financial products, insurance products, and various other even gaming products in the blockchain ecosystem. And that's going to, that's going to rapidly accelerate all the things you see getting built. The, the second dynamic is what I call the slow case for adoption. So the slow case for adoption is where all of those cool use cases that are composed of all these services and on-chain protocols that can now interoperate and are built specifically to inter be able to be used interoperably, all of those use cases are now being provided to a sufficiently large community to become successful. Right. So four years ago, um, if you made an application in the blockchain space, you even if you got a certain percentage of the blockchain ecosystem's early adopter users, your application and the team you made would not have been successful. It, it, it's very likely you wouldn't have been successful. You might have not had enough users. You might not have been able to get VC funding for the amount of users or usage or value lock that you would have had. Right. Today, you see teams launching relatively quickly without having to build their own security by using these building blocks that have security built in. Building blocks from other protocols, building blocks from systems like Chainlink that provide an individual piece of data on chain. And you see them compose this into a use case um, like Pool Together, which is a, a use of our, of our Chainlink VRF system, which is a lossless kind of um, savings game. Um, and you see them gain rapid adoption, right? You see something like Aave get rapid adoption in lending. You see Synthetics get rapid adoption in, in, in derivatives, Pool Together gaining adoption. And that's because the universe in the blockchain ecosystem is now sufficiently large that if you launch an application here, you can become very successful. You can go on to secure hundreds of millions of dollars in value from users in a number of weeks or months. And that's the slow case for adoption in that as the ecosystem slowly grows and as there's a pattern of success for applications within our ecosystem without any adoption from outside, you get better and better teams, more and more teams building applications for a growing user base of essentially early adopters. But an early adopter user base that's past the threshold of applications being able to be successful just servicing that user base. And that's to DeFi. In DeFi, for example, let's say there's 12 to 15 billion, there's you know, 360, 370 billion in cryptocurrency. So the amount of value that could still flow into DeFi is, is, is much, much larger than the value that's already there. And the applications that are built within the DeFi ecosystem to capture that value will likewise become successful because they'll end up you know, securing billions of dollars which by any definition of a technology company will be success and will be something that allow them to exist and continue to improve and make better and better products in this composable um, kind of service-oriented architecture rapid iteration format, which is now coming into existence. And so the slow case is very hopeful and it's very positive and the rate at which it's occurring in terms of the growth of the ecosystem and in terms of the quality of the applications getting built because of composability, both of those are accelerating. So that's, that's the slow case for adoption. The, the fast case to adoption is, is one of the things you briefly mentioned where people have now started to wonder about the counterparty risk, solvency, and guarantees of the various institutions and systems 
that they have traditionally taken for granted as being true and reliable. And that is usually a consequence of people waiting for um, a large market correction, a large bust cycle, and it becomes even more intense when a correction or bust cycle actually happens. I mean, if you look back at 2008, there were all these kind of studies done about how can we improve the transparency of the global financial system so that the markets can be more efficient and boom and bust cycles are not as intense. I think in, in the current climate, the fast case for DeFi and smart contract adoption in general is that if there's a correction or a bust cycle, what you see, what, what you'll see is you'll see people understanding their counterparty risk. You'll see them understanding the relationship they actually have with an insurance company versus the one they thought they had. The relationship they actually have with a bank and the assets they hold in the bank versus the relationship they thought they had. And that contrast, uh, that stark contrast between the relationship they think they have and the relationship they actually have, which they become aware of in the context of a market correction or a bust cycle, is something that people uh, will be hypersensitive to because it affects uh, their economics, it affects their livelihood, it affects their, their ability to, to, to have a kind of economic and productive future. And so in, historically, when, when these corrections and, and bust cycles happen, there's a period of hyper hypersensitivity to essentially how does the financial system work? What is my relationship with counterparties? What is my relationship to my assets? What is my relationship to all the parties that are supposed to pay out things like insurance and other, and other guarantees? And I think at that point, with that hypersensitivity, people will come to the very clear understanding that blockchain-based systems are superior on this dimension and that there is no other infrastructure out there that comes close to giving them the types of counterparty risk guarantees, transparency guarantees, levels of control, um, basically levels of risk management that a blockchain gives them. And that's, so that's the fast case for adoption. The fast case is people become hypersensitive to risk. They become hypersensitive to counterparty risk. They become hypersensitive to control of assets in a market correction or bust cycle. And in that hypersensitivity, in that search for a solution, they very clearly, in my opinion, come up, uh, across blockchains. And therefore, they come across the smart contracts that make up the financial products running on blockchains. And therefore, they come across all the systems, the protocols, the services that make up those smart contracts. And that's how I think you see a rapid, um, you know, for many people, unexpected level of adoption uh, because it, it, it is that value proposition of transparency, control, fairness, predictability that blockchains excel at providing. And when everything is going well, that property is not particularly valued because there's no, not that much risk to manage. But in, an, in a world where counterparty risk is through the roof and the reliance people had on brands doesn't follow through the way they thought it would because the brands maybe aren't solvent, maybe aren't able to fulfill their obligations to them. Um, in that hypersensitive environment, I think blockchains really, really, really shine. And I think the, the other, other interesting thing is that blockchains might finally be at the point where they as a technology can service that need at the scale and at the um, level of usability and level of, level of control and interaction with users that people would want to have with them. 
Well, that was a what we would call an old school fashion schooling right there. So thank you for that, Sergey. That was fantastic. Obviously, Cognizant, you are a very busy founder these days uh, with Chainlink. So with that, we're going to part ways. Thank you again for coming on and congratulations on all the continued success at Chainlink. As I said again, in my view and in many others, a very, very vital and integral part of the overall ecosystem here and making things work and connect. And obviously, uh, just in terms of compostability and all the other things, very, very important. So, Sergey, thank you for coming on again. We'll hopefully have you on again in a few months, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Yep, my, my pleasure, David. Thank you for having me on. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.